Hi, everyone. I'm Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on the Build podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about product. Turns out that product is kind of important when you're doing product-led growth. Who knew, right? <laughs> but today we're going to hear from Scott Williamson, longtime VP of product at SendGrid. He's going to tell us how to prioritize your roadmap, the trade-offs between building new features and optimizing for growth, and how to launch a new product inside an existing company, along with many more tidbits of good product wisdom. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to the Build Podcast. Thank you, Blake. Happy to be here. And to give listeners a sense of your background, I know you've been a product leader for a long time now, 10 years at CA, I believe, and now six years at Syngrid. From my understanding, CA follows more of a traditional sales and marketing-led approach, while SendGrid embodies more of a product-led growth approach. So from your perspective, I would love to hear more about your background, but also would love to hear how would you describe the differences between these two different go-to-market models? Yeah, the CA stretch that was with a single product that was initially incubated by a startup called Wiley Technology. So I joined them at about employee 100 and was there about four years before CA acquired the company and then stayed at CA another six. So a grand total of 10 years with the product, which was super interesting to see the whole life cycle of that product. That particular product was called Application Performance Management, and it was targeted at enterprise IT shops. It tended to be a pretty complex IT environment with complicated requirements, oftentimes having to fit into really high-scale enterprise IT environments. So as a result, what it required was heavy direct sales involvement to drive revenue. It wasn't the kind of thing that someone could self-serve or pull straight off the shelf. Oftentimes, we would come in with at least a highly paid sales rep and a highly paid sales engineer, kind of go in and get the lay of the land and map what we did to their environment. So really kind of expensive direct sales motion. We had a little bit of channel play, basically zero self-serve. In stark contrast, SendGrid started out as a self-serve company. To draw some contrast, the average sales price for the application performance management project product was about 300K. SendGrid's about $200 a month. The price point and the ability to self-serve was totally different. And the net result is that the overall investment in sales and marketing was dramatically different. Most SaaS companies have 40% plus investment in sales and marketing. SendGrid's is more like 25%. That basically means that the envelope for spend on sales and marketing is just much higher in some of these other situations which can put pressure on an R&D budget. And how does this difference in model, so serving a different customer type, very different deal size, you know, as you said, 300K versus $200, and then just the overall investment in sales and marketing, how does that then affect the product org? What was the product org for you like at CA? And then how is that different and similar to what it's like at SendGrid? It sets up a situation like I previewed on the last question where the envelope that you have to work with for R&D spend tends to be smaller if the company's go-to-market 
is heavy on a direct sales investment. So by comparison, our spend in R&D at SendGrid is on the order of 25% of revenue, whereas at CA, my product line at best had 15%. So at CA, the investment tended to be on fairly low-cost engineering. We had about 40% of our engineering was offshore. And it tended to put pressure on teams that surround engineering. So product management, design, product marketing. We didn't have nearly as much of an investment when you look at ratios as we do at SendGrid. For example, at SendGrid, we have about a six to one ratio of engineers to product managers. And we have a one-to-one ratio between designers and product managers. At CA, we had about 20 engineers to 1 p.m. And we didn't even have our own designers. We had a shared pool of designers that we sometimes had access to. So we're able to invest in much more healthy ratios for product people, design people, product marketing, architects. These people that surround engineers and tee up more high-quality projects. So... It's a real blessing to be in a situation where you can invest in healthy ratios and those important functions. And something that I can imagine plays out in an environment, I guess, in the two different environments is in a more sales-led culture that's certainly enterprise sales-oriented. I know oftentimes that the sales organization, whether it's a rep or a sales engineer, has much more of a say and a voice in the product roadmap because they're the ones touching the customer, touching the prospect. And then in more of a self-serve product-led growth model, there's more of an orientation towards the direct end user who's giving you feedback either explicitly or implicitly. That's my understanding of it. Is that how it played out or not so much? Very much so. CA's culture was very sales driven. Just to draw one example, we had a customer who paid us $60 million over the course of eight or 10 years for this product. So when somebody is paying you that much money, they have a lot of pull and it makes sense, right? You're trying to optimize for relatively few customers that pay you a ton of money. And that's just the way it is. I think it leads to subpar product results over time because it can lead to feature bloat. It can lead to things that might make sense for one huge customer, but not for the rest. And it gets very difficult to contain that. But because the revenue results depend so much on relatively few customers, it's hard to push back on that. Contrast, Syngrid has 80,000-ish paying customers. The top customer is no more than 2% of our total revenue. So we can afford to do things that benefit the masses because no one customer can ruin our quarter, let's say. So it puts the product team in the position where they have the ability to really listen broadly and do things that they think is going to have broad impact, do things that they think most customers will understand and get value out of, and you're not forced to do things that one or a handful will only benefit from. And that's a good segue into another question that I wanted to ask you, which was about prioritization of the product roadmap and of different constituents in that product roadmap. So if we focus on SendGrid specifically, if you end up having one of those larger customers for SendGrid, say someone like an Uber or a Spotify, if they come to you and say, we need a specific feature, this is really important to us, how do you respond to something like that? Well, I mean, we love those customers and we, I think we do pay more attention to the larger customers than we would to one of the tens of thousands that are closer to the $200 average price point. So it's not that we ignore the large customers, but we are super sensitive to doing things that the majority will understand and benefit from. SendGrid 
98% of our customers come in and pay with a credit card. And they come in and they don't talk to sales. Many of them don't even talk to support. And it's essential that they be able to grok and understand the user experience. And so we have to really fight adding complexity that really only the big boys might need. And so the result is I could probably count on one hand the number of things that we've done for one or a handful of customers. We've been pretty ruthless about not prioritizing that kind of thing in the core product. What we have done is we have pulled some of those more complex things into services offerings that some of our high-end customers need. And we use people and experience and expertise to help customers deal with some of the more complex areas of using the product so that we don't overcomplicate the core user experience and we contain the complexity to these services offerings where we can be flexible and use people to help out. And by the way, monetize that as well. And another question for you on prioritization within the product organization and roadmap. If I think about product-led growth businesses, there's kind of two core priorities in my mind for the product organization. There is one, building the product itself, the thing that people use every day and get value out of. But then two, there's also kind of building the product-led growth engine and putting viral loops, putting conversion, you know, whatever it may be into the product itself in order to drive user acquisition, user conversion, user expansion. And so these two things, and I guess my question for you is, how do you prioritize between that idea of building the product itself, the thing people use every day, and then the sort of acquisition engine that's inherent to the product itself? And are those competing priorities? Are they kind of one and the same? Walk us through that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. For a product-led growth company like SendGrid, with 98% of our customers by count coming in through the front door, we've come to view the website and the sign-up flow as part of the product. So we have core engineering teams that focus on that, the website, the sign-up flow, it all rolls up through product. And so we try to manage that holistically and we try to think about the experience from the time somebody comes in and looks at our website or looks at our docs all the way through to buying and using it. And we try to remove friction wherever we can. At the end of the day, everything's a priority call. We can emphasize one thing versus another. That's all part of the product. That's all part of the product development thinking. It's just a matter of how much you emphasize one area versus another in any time period. We have found that the ROI on improving the ability for someone to get into the product fast, to buy it fast, to get set up fast is enormous. We have really tight tracking on the metrics that we track for user acquisition and growth. And we've found if we can move those by tiny percentages, the impact on the bottom line, given our huge customer base, is really substantial. So it becomes a pretty easy argument to build teams around those and invest in those. Got it. Have there been any scenarios in which there's been almost a sort of competing priority in the sense that if you think about the core product itself, maybe from a survey or from user research, it seems that a large percentage of users want a new feature or a change in the product. But then that change also in the minds of folks that are thinking about growth and the product light growth engine at SendGrid might introduce additional friction or have a detrimental impact conversion rate or something like that in their minds. And so on the one hand, it's kind of both of these things are important. Our users are asking us for this new feature. However, conversion and ease of use and time to value is also important. I guess in that scenario, which one wins? 
I don't know if there's a cookie cutter answer. I will say, first of all, we use a prioritization system to try to compare projects against one another because some of them drive revenue, some of them cut costs, some of them decrease risk. And it can be really hard to compare projects that have different dimensions like that. So we use a system called RICE, which we actually borrowed from Intercom. They do a lot of things well as a product team. So we just borrowed it. And RICE is reach, impact, confidence, and effort. And we just try to look at projects on that basis. Like what's this one going to do versus another? And we try to use as objective as measures as we can to try to compare. I'll say we've probably prioritized the sort of the smoothness of onboarding over a bunch of features. You know, we've certainly launched features, but I think the investment in that has been much lower than the investment in creating a smooth sign-up and onboarding experience and just scaling up and meeting our original brand promise. Like customers just expect Sangre to work. So we've invested a ton in scalability, security, making sure the thing is highly available, making sure the APIs are clean. My own opinion is we've prioritized the simplicity and the availability of the service over a bunch of features. And something that you had mentioned before I wanted to come back to, because it also pertains to what you just talked about in terms of prioritization, is just the concept of who's focused on growth, who's focused on the growth engine on the product side. So you mentioned that there's some engineers that are focused on growth. Does that mean that at SendGrid you have a formal kind of growth team or a set of growth engineers, or do you organize it and conceptualize it differently from a team standpoint? We have a matrixed group that manages our acquisition funnel, and it consists of essentially three teams. We have a team that runs our website, and that's super important because it's how we present the product. It has the pricing page. The sign-up flow begins there. And so that's super important at the top of the funnel. We also have a revenue marketing team, which does a lot of demand generation. They do a ton of SEM and SEO and brand building through web channels so that customers can find us. So they're essentially filling the top of the funnel. The website team is managing that first initial experience. And then we have a what we call a growth engineering team that, among other things, manages that sign-up funnel, that process of taking someone from buying the product into getting started. They do things like in-app messaging, and they run tests and experiments to try to reduce friction and get people through that funnel. So the combination of those three sub-teams meets on a weekly basis. They take a look at our funnel metrics, and they try to pick what's most important, drive small projects to improve those and just chip away. Makes sense. Talking a bit about some of the products that you've built in your organization at SendGrid, I think the best lens to look through that might actually be some of the new products that you guys have launched over time. So I noticed that there's marketing campaigns, for example, is a big product launch that you guys had a while back and services as well, which you had referenced a few minutes ago. And I know that you kind of spearheaded both of those. So how do you determine if you should build a new product and what new products should be built? This is a super hard question for people who own product strategy to answer. I'll just talk about the two product lines you're talking about, and I'll talk about what led us to build those, and we can go wherever you want from there. Marketing campaigns, we decided to build that for two key reasons. One, our customers were pulling us there. Like Our core product, our email API, is obviously targeted at technical developer types, and people then embed email into their customer experiences. And that worked really well, but they wanted the non-technical part of the company to be able to jump on 
and use SendGrid as well. And so we did see a lot of customers saying, hey, we want the other side of the house to, to get involved here. We love SendGrid. We'd love to have one email vendor. Can you help us? And so that's important when you see your current customers telling you what to do next, you should probably listen. The second big reason we decided to do it is because of market dynamics. Our core email infrastructure market is, I would say, modestly sized. It's certainly a decent size, but it's not huge. And we couldn't continue to grow at 30, 40, 50% on an ongoing basis if we were going to stay purely in that market segment. And so we went after marketing campaigns because it's in an adjacent market called email marketing, which is five to six times larger than email infrastructure. So for us, it was a combination of filling what we saw as a customer need and also giving ourselves more market headroom to grow at a rapid rate for a long time to come. Services was a little bit different. That was less about market size. We're essentially staying in the same market with our services. The reason why we decided to launch those is because it improves customer outcomes. Customers who use services tend to be stickier. They have better retention. They tend to spend more with us over time. They tend to be happier with higher NPS. And prior to introducing a services line, we found we were essentially giving a lot of that away through our support and our customer success teams. And so we wanted to, A, continue to double down on improving services and improving customer outcomes. And we felt like we could improve our incremental revenue run rate by doing so. So those were the reasons for those two product lines. I think in general, as a product leader, you need to be careful about this because anytime you introduce a new product, it distracts from your original one. So you need to pick your moment. But at some point, any fast-growing company is going to need to expand. But picking the right moment for that is a challenge. And also picking which specific products should be in the multi-product strategy. It's an interesting topic to me. So something that I hear founders talking a lot about and product leaders talking a lot about is the fundamental debate between the idea of building a platform and building an application. Yep. And I can imagine what I hear from founders, especially if they have more of a platform approach to an API-based solution that's sold to developers, you can do anything you want with it. That's the platform. And then there's an opportunity to build applications on top of the platform. But then the fundamental decision is kind of a build versus partner. Are we going to build the platform and make it easier for developers to build that application on top of us? Or are we going to actually build an application ourselves and serve more end users rather than relying on partners? And so it's a fundamental trade-off type decision. What did that conversation look like for you guys internally? I imagine there were some, some good debates about it. <laughs> there was a giant debate right around the time I joined the company. So at the time I joined, we were still a one product company and the product was growing nicely and doing all the things you want in early stage, kind of be round kind of company to be doing. And so the question before us was, as you say, do we want to stay a platform? To be precise, the debate was, do we want multiple developer tools sitting next to email? Or do we want to be an email communications company? And those are pretty different paths. And when I joined, there was probably a 50-50 split about the company about where we ought to go. Over time, we zeroed in that we were going to be an email communications company. We weren't just going to go try to find you know, adjacent developer tools. Once we decided we were going to be an email communications company, the decision to take on marketing campaigns became much more clear. It made a ton of sense. And the reason is if you're going to be an email communications company, you've got to serve non-technical users because marketing teams 
drive a lot of email programs at companies. And if you're only serving the technical developers, you're not going to effectively position yourself as an email communications company. You'll be an email API. You'll be a platform, if you will, for email. But we couldn't effectively serve that if we didn't at least do some of that ourselves. That was the trump card. Once we decided on our company vision, then the product vision kind of settled in. And what we ended up doing is creating two layers. So we still have a platform. Companies have built tons of stuff on that. And to your earlier point, kind of gotten the best of both worlds because we have a platform. We derive direct revenue from that. Customers who come in and generate email for their customers. We have thousands of customers who have built marketing apps on top of us who use us indirectly. Their customers don't necessarily know that SendGrid is under the hood. We derive sort of indirect revenue from the volume that they generate through that. Plus, we built our own app for our target segment, which was business-to-consumer mid-market marketers. And we've made a nice business off of marketing campaigns there and have been able to position ourselves as an email communications company rather than just an email API. So it's a way to build a platform, not compromise that, but then also act as a developer on top of your own platform Yes, kind of do both at the same time. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Now, so this is the easy part, quote unquote, <laughs> of uh, <laughs> deciding to build a new product, right? And clearly it's not that easy. A lot of debate, very difficult decision. But, you know, you make the decision, great, we're going to build a new product inside an existing successful company. Now the harder part comes, even harder, which is, all right, well, how do we build a new company and allocate the right resources, make sure that it's a priority, make sure it doesn't die in the vine, make sure it's not cannibalizing, you know, all of those then execution questions uh, that come after the fact. So how did you guys tackle that side of the new product endeavor? So hard, especially when your first product is flying off the shelves as ours was. I've often referred to the first handful of years at SendGrid is like staying on the bull. <laughs> that, first product, on, right? that first product was growing really fast and volumes were going through the roof and it took a ton of energy just to scale that initial thing. So while all that's going on and we're trying to harden our security, make sure the thing is highly available, make it easy to sign up for and easy to use, we decided to take on a net new product that's in an adjacent market with the brand new target user. It was a busy time. It's pretty hard. We made a bunch of mistakes. Maybe I'll outline the mistakes we made and then suggest how we've corrected those over time. One challenge is creating iterative developmental milestones. I would say that our MVP, our V1, was actually quite large. One of the reasons why we ended up there is because email marketing is such an established space. There's a ton of established competitors and the expectation for kind of a V1 base email marketing product is actually requires a ton of development. It's pretty big. And so that's why we ended up with a big V1. But I have to believe we could have done a better job of building it and releasing it and testing it incrementally. We have gotten much better about that over time. But what that meant was the journey to V1 was long and hard. We underinvested because we didn't really realize how big the project was going to be. And so that dragged it out. So that's sort of on the build side. And then on the go-to-market side, I don't think we did enough to convince the company that this was something they needed to heavily prioritize. In the early days, sales was kind of afraid to sell it. Our customer success team was kind of afraid to recommend it. People were sort of tiptoeing around it because it was new. We didn't know it that well. We didn't know this new target user, this new target market that well. 
And so people were a little tentative early. So things I would do differently. One, I mentioned, create an iterative launch strategy where you know exactly what you're trying to do at each phase. You know how big it is and you can hire the right size of team to get there. And then you can take a checkpoint. Did we do what we thought we were going to do? Are we getting the traction we thought we were going to get? If yes, move to the next phase and staff that up as needed. So you can kind of increment your way into it. And whatever you need to go get that next phase done, do it. Don't shortchange it. You have to have the right people. In hindsight, I wish we had invested more heavily in a really high-end architect, a really high-end engineering manager, a really high-end PM who had done something similar before. I'm not saying the exact same thing, but at least something of that scale with that kind of technical challenge to help guide us through because it was new to us. We didn't go out and get the right kind of experts early enough. And had we, we may have avoided some architectural mistakes and sped the project up. So that's on the build side. Those are a few things I would have done differently. On the company go-to-market thing, we should have made it the number one priority or number two. Like it's got to be one of two. Otherwise, people will not be sure if they should really divert from something that they know is working. You have to make this a huge priority for the company. Our CEO, once we figured this out, he kept saying, we need disproportionate energy on this. If we're going to succeed here, we're going to win, we're going to figure this out, we're going to get this thing over the hump. We need disproportionate energy. And so that means from the CEO on down, everyone knows it's a priority. You carve out the resources, you give them the space, you also hold them accountable. One tactic that we used was we created a little company within the company. We called it MC Inc. And even though we didn't have a GM set up, we sort of created a mini business unit where people who were responsible for driving marketing campaigns outcomes basically met like a company within the company. They kind of dotted line into this MC Inc. And that created a shared sense of purpose. It created much better lines of communication between all the key people. And once we did that, everything kind of unlocked and we got the cross-functional buy-in. We really needed to get this thing humming. When did you know that it was working? One, the market speaks and money talks and all that stuff. Like if you're seeing the external world respond to it, are you getting people to sign up for it? Are they staying? Are they paying a fair price for it? If you set it up right and you have milestones with clear expectations, you can see whether you're hitting those or not. So are you getting people to adopt at the rate you expect? That's one signal. Two is internal buy-in. We have a target persona for marketing campaigns, and her name is Olivia. She's a multi-hat marketer. And when one signal that this thing was working and that the company was getting it is you'd hear people in support or people in sales talking about Olivia. <laughs> hey, I met an Olivia the other day. Or when they start to really internalize the target user, the target market, the target competitors, then you know it's kind of clicking internally. And shifting gears to talk about another thing that you've owned as you've been running product at SendGrid, and this one might be a little bit odd for the average outside onlooker, which is pricing. <laughs> why is it important? And why is it important for it to live and be associated with product? I think pricing is an underappreciated lever. If you get pricing right, you can create dramatic improvement to your top and bottom lines. But sadly, pricing is often an afterthought. Many product teams think about it after they've already built the thing. 
They think about it towards the launch phase. They don't have dedicated pricing teams, so they're just guessing. Tons of mistakes get made around pricing. One reason why it's especially important for SendGrid is that I view pricing as part of the product experience. Like I mentioned, when 98% of our customers coming in and paying with a credit card, they're not talking to anybody. You don't have a sales rep justifying it. You don't have somebody explaining how the thing is priced. It has to be intuitive. They have to get it right away. They have to come on the website and say, oh yeah, I understand it. I see the value. Here's the package that speaks to me. Seems worth it. I understand the price metric. Let's go. If any of those things are off, it can create friction that can cause someone to just move on. Ah, That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand what that product's going to do for me. I don't understand. I don't know how much I'm going to pay. It's too much math. I don't think it's worth it. I don't see the value. All those Customer reactions can happen if they don't get pricing. And so we decided several years ago we wanted to build a pricing function to go do the homework necessary to get it right. At this point, we have a director who owns several functions, including pricing, and we just hired our second pricing professional. So it's a team of two and a half that thinks about pricing every day, which seems like a big investment to most companies, but I think it's been worth every penny. As I mentioned, Small changes in pricing can have a huge impact to your bottom line, but you have to get it right. If you miss on pricing, it can cost you in big ways. You know, these people have the right skills. They know how to do the homework. They know how to do the quantitative and qualitative analysis. And it's been a huge boon to us. One reason why it's awesome to have them in product is that we basically treat them like product managers. They get trained on the same skills as product people around customer interviewing and problem and solution validation. And they will often ride along with PMs early in the validation process to make sure they understand the problem, to make sure they understand what our solution is, to make sure they understand who the target user is and what the value this thing creates. So that by the time we get to build and launch, we have a really good idea what this thing is worth and how we're going to price it. So that you're not guessing at the end, you kind of do that homework along the way. So it's been really good move. Yeah, pricing is one of those interesting things that it's so powerful. It can be so powerful to your growth engine or to dropping profit to the bottom line. Yet in no startup is there a chief pricing officer or a pricing (laughs) department. (laughs) So it's this incredibly powerful thing that's not owned by anybody, but it has to be owned by somebody. And I agree with you that aligning it with product as a part of product experience especially in product-led growth where nobody is, as you mentioned, nobody is helping you go through the process. Nobody's walking you through. It just has to be immediately clear what the product is, but then also what the value is relative to the price point. So it's key. And the other challenge with it is it's super important. (laughs) And everybody gets risk-averse about it because nobody wants to make a bad move. Nobody wants for it to get worse. And If you don't have the data to back up your recommendations, if it's just the product VP's opinion versus the sales VP, like you get in this kind of executive gridlock. And so having the homework, having talked to customers, having a really well thought out framework for pricing with data to back it up can help break through that and help the company gain confidence in why you're doing what you're going to do. Exactly. Glad to hear you guys are taking that approach. Mm-hmm. And I guess my final question for you is obviously going to some of the biggest recent news for Syngrid is the recent acquisition that was announced by Twilio, uh, which <laughs> yep. is certainly exciting and it's big news. Congratulations to you guys. And I would love to hear from your perspective, what has impressed you most about Twilio and their product strategy? Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, one thing that's awesome is that 
Twilio and SendGrid had almost identical product visions. Our words were, we want to be the world's most trusted customer communication platform. And Twilio's is very similar. It's a great starting point to come into a company where you are both heading in the same direction. But at the same time, there's almost no overlap between our product lines. We were going in the same direction, but we did it with email as our center of gravity. They did it with voice and SMS as their center of gravity. And so we have a similar approach to API design and docs and developer experience and both have robust self-serve motions. So tons of similarities between the companies. We just have to kind of bring them together. But because we started from the same foundation, it should be relatively straightforward. Also, they were going up stack like we were. We went up stack with marketing campaigns. We're working on a paid beta product for display ads. We were building prepackaged experiences on top of our pipeline for busy marketers. They're doing the same thing in the support arena. They have a new product called Flex, which basically consumes and packages up all the APIs underneath into a ready-to-go interface for support reps. You know, one of their marquee early customers is Shopify. They have a big group of support reps, and so they're all sitting in front of Twilio Flex. And what's unique about it is it's kind of the best of both worlds between SaaS and the flexibility of software development. Flex experience gets them 80% of the way there. Like, boom, here's your UI. Here's our stock interface. Now you can figure anything you want. And so it combines the flexibility and the power of those APIs underneath, but it gets people started and they can cut down on the end-to-end time to get something like a support interface set up. Both have powerful API set, both going up stack. And I think what you could expect is a programmable API layer with email included along with Twilio's whole range, which includes SMS, voice messaging, etc. And then some pre-packaged experience for marketers, support teams, probably eventually sales. I'm super excited about that combo. Well, it sounds like it definitely is the future of customer communications, and it's an exciting future. It's a logical acquisition. Really interesting to hear that it's not just sort of logical from a product portfolio and strategy standpoint and a focus on developers, but also logical from a mission standpoint. What are you trying to accomplish? What's the ultimate vision and set of goals for each company and now the combined entity? It's exciting. We're looking forward to it. We appreciate you, Scott, walking us through your experience and your journey and sort of enlightening us on your wisdom with product-led growth. This has been an awesome conversation. Awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, Blake. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com newsletter. See you next time.